This is the Bureau of Lost Culture, and I'm Stephen Coates. In a little cobble street behind Russell Square tube station, on the corner is a strange old building dating back to the 18th century. If it's not the last bastion of counterculture west of Berlin, it's certainly the last bastion of counterculture in central London. And the person who, for all that time, has curated, collected, organised and programmed it is our guest today. He started off his working life on a farm and has ended up working in a horse hospital. He may be an animal lover, but he's certainly not a vet. I'm not sure if he even has a pet. But this horse hospital has been home for the last 27 years to an extraordinary range of fringe and alternative countercultural events, exhibitions, films, events, gigs, happenings, you name it. A lot of artists, including me, uh, have had their start there and via the agency of my guest. Now that horse hospital is now under threat for the usual predictable depressing reasons of property development and greed, but more on that later. I'm very pleased to welcome Roger Burton to the Bureau to talk about his life in the counterculture, a life that has included, as well as the horse hospital, supplying clothes to the boutiques of swinging 60s and 70s London, designing shops for Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren, working on hundreds of memorable pop videos and the film's Quadrophenia, Absolute Beginners, the list goes on. He's also the author of the book Rebel Threads, a kind of primer for clothes of resistance, youth cultural togs from the 1920s right the way through to the 1980s. It's like a catalogue of countercultural clothing. So I'm very pleased to welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture our guest, Roger Burton. Hello, Roger. Hi there, Stephen. Roger, I know you've been at the horse hospital for more years than you probably care to remember, but you're not from London, actually. Where did it all begin? I was born in a little village uh, in Leicestershire called Burton Overy, born on a farm. Uh, my parents were tenant farmers. Um, you know, I, mean, I hated school, absolutely hated it. Left, left when I was 15, as quickly as possible. By which time, um, I think that was 1962, my, um, my father had just died... And um, I got a job in on a farm because uh, that's all I knew. And I, you know, I did that for a, a, a couple of years. But it it was the beginnings of the whole mod era uh, that I was completely enraptured with. And um, all of my friends who I'd gone to school with, they, you know, they, 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 they'd all got proper jobs in factories and stuff, you know, earning £25 a week and I was only earning £4 a week and uh, doing more hours probably. Got a job there as a crane driver, truck driver, tractor driver. Yeah, I was earning £25 a week and it was great. I could buy all the clothes I wanted. And, so, let's, yeah. let's, so tell us about that then. So you said you fall in love with the mod thing, but what was the mod thing? I mean, so you're talking about early 60s, right? So it's the mod as a kind of youth cultural group have emerged, have they? And what, yeah. was it, what, did, it mean, yeah. what did it mean to you? Music, clothes, style, what was it? Late 1950s, we were, we were, you know, people were kind of getting over the rock and roll thing. Um, this particular school I went to in Oadby had a, had a really good youth club and um, 
they would have these kind of, you know, disco, not disco, what am I saying? Uh, like music nights, you know, somebody would bring along a load of records and stuff and so on. But invariably it was like blues or, you know, a bit of folk or skiffle or whatever. Until And then one night, um, I, I remember it quite distinctly, this, there was this Friday night, this guy um, um, started playing this black soul music and... Um, and and there was there was a, two or three kids there that just got up and danced, and they were like dancing in this really weird way. And I said, "Holy shit, this is like what what and and what what have they got on? You know, jeans and button-down shirts, maybe t-shirts or whatever." And I just thought, "Wow, this is great. I really I really want a bit of this, you know." Mm. And so, um, and that was mod. So it was a combination. And that was of... the beginning of mod. Yeah, right. I mean that was probably nine sixty three. So I, different I types of clothes, different kinds of sounds. Uh, yeah, it was, it was primarily the music that that drew me in because I'd heard nothing like it mm. before. You, you didn't hear that sort of stuff on the radio. You might have heard it on Radio Luxembourg occasionally. And so, and then these little kind of actual pop up clubs started to open up in the backs of pubs uh, there was there was one famous coffee house that opened up Bruciana's coffee house in Leicester um and and it wasn't about getting pissed or you know whatever i mean it was you know about drinking uh, coffee or coke or whatever and dancing and and listening to the music and more than anything looking great you know and kind of um one started to really pay attention to the way you, you, you know you looked at the time the hair and the clothing and the, and the, it it rapidly became apparent that there was this sort of you know look that was emerging that was quite different to anything mm. um that that I'd seen before and I really really got into it uh well I mean it, it became my life really I was just Yeah, well, I was going to say I mean we we're, we're going to come back to that because obviously we're going to talk about the book uh, your book uh, in a bit and of course the collection at the horse hospital but I mean in a way you've just summed up you know the main the main elements of, of youth culture haven't you it's this music style which is usually different than most of the, your contemporaries and also what's come before that's and right. then getting together. I mean, of course, Soho, I get the impression there's a big coffee cafe scene here too. It was more about being together, listening to music and looking good yeah. rather than getting pissed, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and that sort of defines kind of youth culture in some way, right? It was, I, I think most of it was centred around, around music and, and, and the clothing sort of fitted in with that somehow, mm. you know, whether it be beat or mod or... You, you know, you wanted to look like your... your your peers, your mates, or whatever, and you wanted to do what they wanted to do, you know, listen to the music and, and so on. And you would get groups of guys dancing together, um, and, you know, the girls would be standing around the outside, you know, with their bags. And... Barry Kane told me uh, something <clears throat> interesting. I don't know, do you know Barry? He did yeah. on Flexipop magazine, yeah. Uh, and he said, because he grew up in a council estate in King's Cross, and he said, um, when the new council estates were built... Um, he's talking about London, but I guess it would be true elsewhere too. It had a big impact on the way that guys dressed. Why? Because for the first time they had halls where they could have full-length mirrors by the door. So they could oh, check out their mm. whole look mm, mm, rather mm, than mm, just check mm, out their sort mm, of head mm, and shoulders in the mm. bathroom mirror. Uh, and he, he dated his own sort of, you know, uh, styling to that time. Mm. Plus also, uh, of course, he said, and I don't know if this is true of mod but he said it was a working class thing it came from the working class 
boys with cash, basically. That's what it was. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I mean, there was this working class pride. You you were working. You got a bit of, got a bit of cash. There was lots of things to spend spend your money on. A lot of it was. Um, imported from America. I mean, like Levi 501s, for example. They started to appear in in the early 60s and you just had to have a pair of that. And it doesn't matter, you know, like how much it cost or whatever, but you just had to do it. And um, uh, American imported shirts, button-downs and T-shirts and so on. Every mod had to have a suit or, 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 you know, maybe more than one suit and you would save up. I remember the first suit I got, I think, was like £15. Um, which, which was now, a lot of money, right? Which was when I was working on the farm. It was equivalent to like three weeks' wages, uh, or even four weeks, because you, you know, not only were, were we listening to these these amazing black R and B singers and soul singers, we wanted to look like them as well. <laughs> and so you, you know, you're buying the fabrics, um, um, kid mohairs, um, you know, that, that had that kind of bit of a hint you know a bit of a shine under under under, under lights um, but we're still quite muted and subtle and but the damn stuff creased creased really badly and so you know if you if you went into a if you went on you know down to a club but you if you went on the bus you'd have to stand up because <laughs> you didn't want to crease your pants you know or your jacket you know you, know, you mentioned then about the 501s and uh, was this the time was this the first time that uh, clothes were being imported from the States f- for the kind of youth market, as it were? No, there have been... Um, uh, clothing had been imported from the States since the probably 20s and 30s, actually. Yeah. Um, Cecil G uh, was one of the first uh, high street uh, shops to... Uh, copy the American look in the 1940s, like zoot suits. And he'd gotten his ideas, most a lot of his ideas, from um, uh, guys who would travel across from um, Southampton to uh, uh, to New York uh, on on the big ocean liners, playing. Uh, as session uh, guys in the in the jazz bands, and of course you know they, you can imagine leaving uh, Grey Britain in the thirties uh, on, on one of these liners and arriving in New York and just seeing the most amazing uh, array of you know coloured men's clothing and and so on, and they, of course they you know they they buy them and they, and they dress them up you know and wear them in the in uh, while while they were on the on the boat performing, and. Allegedly, you know that this is where um, uh, Cecil G got his ideas from, because he'd, he'd end up buying or uh, um, some of these clothes from from these guys who'd, who'd been hmm. over to New York, and then he started copying them and um, making his own um, uh, versions of them, uh, and and it became. He, originally, it was in the East End, but then he moved to Charing Cross Road, and and. That evidently on a Saturday there'd be queues around the block, you know, kids wanting uh, to buy this. The, and he called himself the American Tailor, mm. and um, he really, really set a trend. And and fast forward to 1956, mm. uh, 57, um, he went on holiday to Italy, and and there was there was a, a, a fashion show that had just happened. Um, uh, this new style that appeared, this um, short, sharp, 
slick, tight, uh, uh, like a bum freezer jacket and skinny pants and winkle picker <laughs> shoes and so on. And they, this essentially, you know, was the beginning of mod, um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, back in 57, 58. He, so he came back. And he started to produce this. And, you know, first of all, it was only available in Soho, but it gradually spread out to the to the regions. Why? So, it, so actually there was an Italian influence. That's, oh, very much so. That's yeah. fascinating. That early start, yeah. But, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, this is fascinating stuff. Just to back up a bit with the American thing. So, of course, during the war, you know, Americans are in Europe, big-time GIs are in London, and so, so there's another wave of kind of American stuff. And that seems to have gone throughout... Europe. Last week, I had Jonathan Green in, mm. and you know Jonathan's become the kind of lexicographer of slang, and we were talking about slang and the counterculture. And he he said that the roots of all those kind of countercultural words, which, which we associate with the fifties and sixties, it's all Black American. Yes, it was part totally. of this kind of cultural export, mm. Mm. which came from Black America. It was music, clothes, and even language. Mm, mm. And the interesting thing for me was that, you know, because uh, I spent a lot of time in Russia over the last few years, you know, and uh, in terms of the X-ray record culture, you know, the, the, the main youth group that was the, in the market for those records was the only real Soviet subculture, which was called the Stilyagi. And how did they dress? Mm. They dressed American. And then there was the Bikinazi in Poland and the Jampacek in Czechoslovakia. Mm. And you know similar groups in you know in uh, in Hungary as well, mm, and mm, they mm. all styled themselves mm. on mm. American clothes. Mm. It's amazing, mm. actually. They, they weren't even aware of each other. No, no, no. You know, no. but but that the power or what was it? What was so powerful about that look? About you know that music and even that language that you know it went across. You know, it swept across Europe and that. Way. I, well, jazz. Uh, it, it, it was it was that combination of, of um, early jazz and and movies and 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 how those two kind of uh, you know pr promoted the whole look the sound and everything and kids were just uh, you know particularly in the thirties when it was um, you know we were going through the depression here Great Britain uh, you know to see these amazing. American film stars and you know their glamorous clothes and this amazing jazz music they wanted a bit of that and that's really where uh, as you were saying about you know the slang that's where they started to pick up that slang and there was you know it's it's well noted that um kids would just you know come out of the cinema and they'd be copying that the way that Americans talked on on film mm. you know English English kids would be really it was really so influential. So let's go back to you then. So you're in Leicester still, but you know you're hanging out with the cool kids. You're dressing kind of mod and listening to that mm -hmm. music. And so what happens next? Although I was earning a lot of money, I just wanted to break free, basically. And I thought, you know what? And I, I was trying to be, I don't know, I was just doing whatever, really, just to kind of uh, to keep living. And it was all right. It was I was kind of making a living. I was free. I could do what I wanted to do. Um. Your life, and, presumably, did you feel that your life was in the evening? You know, your life was with your mates and music. And oh yeah, clothes. totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it was. Yeah, um, it that it was all. You know, just a vehicle to to be able to buy clothes and and go to you know clubs and hang out and you know meet girls and take drugs and do whatever. Because the mod thing really kind of um, finished 
1966 and I, I think you know I, I was pretty kind of devastated by that because you know at that time there was there, there had been this sort of um, these strange characters appearing in our town centre you know with long hair and smelling of patchouli and so on and so forth and it's just like what an, you know what is this all about when you say it ended I mean that's interesting I, I mean that's quite a definite date so you say 66 mod ends yeah. why I mean I mean well, it wasn't just the arrival of the hippies by that time uh, it, it, it had gotten a bad reputation kids uh, with scooters and parkers that off to the seaside at, you know bank holidays and started fighting among you know traditional rockers territory you know and kind of trying to invade and it was a combination of that and 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 the music changing I mean, okay, there was always soul music. It always has been. I remember going to see Cream, who at that point were more of a kind of blues R&B sort of uh, lineup, And the place was just, you know, full of hippies. And it was, you know, it turned into this kind of psychedelic blues um, amazingness. That I, and I it was just like, I loved the music. I just didn't want to look like... Um, you know, like uh, long. I didn't want long hair, and so you know, I was true to my suits. I lost interest in clothes quite a bit until this um, local band um, called the Family. You know, one of John Peel's favourite bands, etc. Well, when they first started as a publicity thing, um, they had, had managed to buy Dutch Schultz's uh, uh, famous kind of bullet-ridden gangster car from the from the 30s but they started to dress like that as well and they were still playing soul interestingly enough with a bit of a tinge of of, of psychedelic but um but they were all wearing 1920s and 30s clothes uh, uh, american influence stuff and i you know this appealed to me i mm. said like, okay i can do this you know mm. I, I really want to look like this now so and, so give, um, us, give us a picture of that then. So 1920s, 1930s American clothes is what? S- very sharp suits. You know, almost like the spivs uh, from, the, from the 1940s. I'm one... thinking a pinky in Brighton Rock. It, totally. Got it here in front of yeah, me. Yeah, right totally. Up. Yeah, that, it was that kind of look. Mr Big Shot, as you call it in your book. Spivs <laughs> and wide boys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, so, so this is late bit... 60s. And yeah. you, you've you've eschewed the caftan and the beads yeah. and the long hair and the waist the yeah. embroidered waistcoat. Yeah, and Never you did that. are rocking a gangster look. Yeah, in Leicester. Yeah, I was starting to buy and sell, and uh, I eventually I so I st- I had a stall and you know it was doing all right. It was okay, and then a shop came up. So I've got the shop going. I've got you know vintage van i'm driving around in like a you know 30s van i'm like dressing like a i don't know what and um selling all this stuff and of course i i have a rail of clothing in in the shop as well you know because it was it was become, be, beginning to become quite popular with the likes of bieber and mm. um doing reproductions of it and well i was selling the originals you know like 1930s uh crepe dresses and and you know for the girls and so on but then dealers started to appear uh from london and um i i we seem to be on a kind of regular uh, uh route for 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 london dealers who were not only by looking for uh, antique stuff but we at that time we were doing 
Art Nouveau and Art Deco. And I remember, you know, we had a few jukeboxes and, um, mm. you know, it was all like, because there was a, a, a rock and roll influence coming in, you know, and anything from the 50s and early 60s. Well, it was very so much on. so when, as the, as the hippie thing sort of moved into a more kind of dandified uh, incarnation. I'm thinking Granny Takes a Trip and yeah, those kind of yeah. shops. They went Edwardian, right? The Edwardian yeah, thing yeah, was yeah, big, yeah. wasn't it, with those kind yeah. of... Oh, that, yeah, yeah. You know, the Sergeant Pepper with the kind absolutely. of military jackets absolutely. and all that stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, so suddenly you're becoming hip. Sort of accidentally well, yeah, you stuck yeah, to your guns and you're, you're sort of... The, yeah. the wheels turned. <laughs> and you're yeah, back, you're yeah. back at the hip, yeah, right in was, the hip centre of things. And then I realised that I could probably get a bit more money for my my wares if if I started to go to London with it, you know, rather than them coming to me. I could go and, um, uh, you know, take a van full of stuff down there. And um, I got very friendly with this with this guy in in Birmingham who was doing a similar sort of thing to me between us. And we decided that we would go into partnership uh, on you know certain projects of buying buying clothes and stuff and there was a great interest in in uh, vintage clothes uh, at that time in uh, on the king's road and well all around london and 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 some of the major cities as well and we were particularly um drawn to uh, 430 king's road um um, Westwood McLaren's uh, Let It Rock shop, you know, because they they were reproducing Teddy Boy uh, outfit uh, um, uh, drape jackets and so what. And so what year is stuff. this then? Uh, this would be seventy one, seventy two. Right, so yeah. Malcolm McLaren and Vivian West sort of set up their first shop yeah. on the Kings Road, yeah, selling kind of Teddy Boy stuff, yeah, and then that's when you got to know them, right? Yeah. Yeah, they were very much into doing their own thing. But, we, you know, one would go in and have a look and see what they were up to and so on. And, and unbeknowing, I, I, Malcolm and I were... Because Malcolm was always trying to find original stuff, you know, that he could, they could copy or do whatever. And unbeknown to me early on, we, you know, we used to go to the same places to find stuff. Uh, you know, old army stores um, out in the East End... And they were selling it to the kids, right? That's right. I wanted yeah. to drop in, um, you know, from your book, uh, and it's a quote from your buddy uh, Julian Temple, right mm. at the uh, the beginning. He says, Once upon a time, to be young meant you got to cast yourself in a movie of your own life. Rather than prioritising what job, if you were lucky, you might end up getting, you got to decide instead what kind of human being you wanted to be. Whether you were a beat, a mod, a hippie or a punk, you became part of a defiant youth tribe which defined itself around the potential of what you could be. You became energised by each other, galvanised by the music, the attitude, and above all, the look of your own subculture. Now that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? So Yeah, very much so. So you were selling clothes and, to, or, and, and dealers and, who were selling it on to young people, basically. And yeah. They were yeah. Def, as they had been, you know, right the way back from the 30s, 40s, were yeah. def, defining themselves yeah. by what they wore. This time, so this is early 70s, and the kind of that wave of hippiedom has kind of crashed somewhat on the British economy, and it's gone a bit dark, wasn't it, and stuff, and... Britain, I'm guessing, at that time was a bit more of a greyer place than the Summer of Love and stuff, wasn't it? And but London itself. Well, tell, tell us what London was like and what you know what, it was, what your impressions of it were coming down from Leicester for the first few times and stuff. What was 
Was it vibing? Uh, that those er, the early seventies are uh, particularly on the King's Road were were really exciting times because it was the world's end end. You'd still got the uh, all the you know uh, patchouli shops, let's you know caftans, and but you'd got this you know this. Um, uh, reaction to that with 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 uh, Westwood McLaren's Let It Rock, you know, who was like right in the middle of it actually, and then just around the corner there was um, American classics that were doing you know vintage vintage Americana boiler suits and cowboy shirts and you know old jeans and all mostly denim and um, by nineteen seventy four five. You know, you'd pull up on the on the King's Road with, with the transit van, open up the back doors, and there'd be a queue of, of people wanting to buy, you know, wholesale stuff. You know, mm. and it might it might be some nineteen forty suits. It you know it might be um, some brand new uh, English jeans from the fifties that were made like paper. You know, uh, it might be some you know. Um, uh, Sixty shirts, whatever you know, whatever we we you know we could pick a shoes. It was all about nostalgia and and kind of trying to be different, mm-hmm. and a real kind of explosion. It might be thirties dresses, you know, for the girls or whatever. It's quite an interesting time on the King's Road, isn't it? Because I mean, if you walked on the King's Road now, I mean, it was there a couple of weekends ago. I mean, you wouldn't guess, would you? It's like uber posh, you know. It's one of the most expensive parts of town. And yet, you know, as you say, in the sort of 60s, it was one of the centres for the kind of swinging 60s mm. flower power generation, wasn't it? Lots of rock stars living around there because it's a very nice place Absolutely. even then. Yeah. Before those, full of those boutique hippie shops. And then, of course, in the 70s, it's, it's, it stays cool. It's a world's end. Yeah. Let yeah. it rock. Yeah. Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood stay there, don't they, with their yeah. next shop. Yeah. So I was all we, we were, everybody was fascinated what, what, primarily because they always had kind of uh, uh, um, windows that you couldn't really see in whether it was full of stuff or you know it had been frosted or whatever uh, you, you could so you had to go in to see what they were up to you know they might have something in the window that give you an idea but then at that time uh, they you know they changed to um, too fast to live, too too young to die, which was all biker stuff, you know, and uh, painted leather jackets and all and all that stuff. Because this is obviously pre-punk. So what were they like then? They were rarely in the shop. I mean, uh, uh, Malcolm was always out on the road buying stuff, and Vivian you'd occasionally see walking down the King's Road, you know, with a, with a pair of boots. Uh, she had this old pair of fur boots with a chain, that that uh, and a big padlock, you know, that would be. Shut, tied together and like a biker jacket and white spiky hair and stuff and you think who on earth is this freak you know she's just like amazing you know just like such a statement um it wasn't until you know uh, some years later when i really got to know them everybody all the shops on the king's road they were all all the shop owners they were all fascinated by what was what was going on in that because they kept changing the frontage and it's changing, you know. Within within a short time, they changed to sex and it, uh, you know, and, um, there was all these rumours that Malcolm had had a sex change and um, you know, it was, it, and it, and because we were kind of like free agents, we could just waltz in there, my partner and I, and just see what was going on, you know. And they would 
sort of you know tell the other other shop owners what was what they were up to and so because they wouldn't dare go in because they would they would think that they were you know copying their uh, ideas or so which of course they were but and then garage gigs started uh, uh, popping up with these um, playing this kind of weird music that we we we, we weren't quite sure about um, uh, um, which was obviously the beginnings of punk music you know the the damned and the and we did, I suppose in the early days we didn't actually pay that much attention to it, although we made a lot of uh, there was a lot of talk about it. All bit by bit, the my uh, the people who were buying uh, uh, um, you know the old nostalgia stuff from us um, said, oh, oh, "No, we get we're going to start doing um, you know what Westwood and McLaren are doing, you know they're, they're you know sex and then then seditionaries, you know this new kind of." Uh, look this punk look and um it's almost like our trade died overnight <laughs> so we tried to sort of um uh, keep up with the times and we i remember buying a load of army surplus and having it all dyed black and you know ripping the legs and putting zips in and safety pins and what have you but I mean really my heart was not in it you know? <laughs> yeah, it's just you're like... a sharp dressed man <laughs> trying to be a punk <laughs> so um, we were a little bit too old to be punks to be honest but we still really got off on the energy and enthusiasm of it you know and the look and the sound and so on so we decided I don't know we came up with this plan of um, taking on a shop um, and and trying to do something slightly more um, uh, chic, if you, if you like, for, for the older punk, you know. And this friend of ours, uh, Andrew Tchaikovsky, um, who uh, had started the, um, the Roxy Club, the first punk club on Neil Street, he said, look, I've taken this place on Neil Street uh, in Covent Garden, which I want to use as my office, and I'm going to have bands rehearsing there. Do you want the ground floor t- as a shop? And uh, I was um, I was given the job of designing the interior of it and you know doing doing all that, making it all like something. Um, and then we went off on a buying trip to um, to Holland uh, to the rag markets out there, and we were buying old. Um, uh, Dutch and German leather coats, you know, the, the the sort of almost like sort of Gestapo coats, you know, that sort of look, and leather jodhpurs and riding boots and black shirts. And like, hang on a minute, all of a sudden we've got this sort of like, you know, fascist sort of uh, look coming along. But it was really popular, and uh, <laughs> indeed it became new romantics. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually became new romantics. So the, exactly. with, the, with the Blitz club, yeah, and exactly, what? yeah, yeah. And of course, that's a strong look, isn't it? I mean, there's been a bit of Nazi stuff, wasn't it? With punk, right? They were, they were, they were, they were sort of dallying with a bit of that, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, one can trace it back to, um, you know, kids in the in the fifties. You know, their their um, fathers coming back from the from the Second World War with trophies. You know, the Iron Cross, uh, you know, swastika armband, or you know, a group of medals or whatever. The first, actually, the first time. I was uh, um, uh, made aware of this actually um, when I was researching the book by uh, Ken Hollins. He, in his research, the first time it had ever been written about, where um, kids had started wearing Nazi armbands and 
and iron crosses and stuff was was in surf culture in in um, in the mid fifties uh, in in California, and there was this little group of uh, kids who, you know. <laughs> raided their parent, uh, father's uh, 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 drawers and just found this stuff and started wearing it to antagonise people. You know, um, it's probably, that's a probably good moment to talk about your book. I mean, your book, Rebel Threads, Clothing of the Bad, Beautiful and Misunderstood, I mean, it came out a couple of years ago, Roger, you know, isn't it? And, um, you know, it is a kind of survey of your collection, the contemporary wardrobe collection, yeah. but it's also a kind of guidebook to what, you know, Rebel Threads... What do you mean by that? I mean, if you give us a kind of, if you had to sort of su- sum up what this book's about, apart from being your collection, what holds that together, do you think, through those decades? I've, I've always been um, interested in the baddie. <clears throat> you know, growing up in the 50s and, and watching black and white movies, it might have been gangster movies or cowboys, you know, Wyatt Earp or... Uh, buccaneers, you know, uh, uh, or whatever. It, I was always drawn to the sort of darker sort of characters. And um, when I started to collect clothes um, in the, you know, in the mid-60s, I was sort of, I don't know, subconsciously, I was, it, I, I was naturally drawn to clothes that offended people. I mean, you know, my mother... For example, you know, when I started to wear old sort of uh, 1940s suits, she was like, what What are you doing? You're wearing second-hand clothes, dead men's clothes. You can't, you know. So she was offended, was really she was, she was offended by the fact that they, they were second-hand. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah. in fact, of course, they were very, they had been anyway, extremely smart, stylish clothes. So, that, so, so they, yeah. they weren't offensive in themselves. So it was a context thing, isn't it? Interestingly, um, a, f- a few years ago, I was asked to do a gig in Moscow, and it was at a, at a, at a sort of high-end shop that was selling vintage clothes. And mm. a woman, Maria, who who ran it, and it was quite well-to-do, and she had a buyer here and a buyer in Paris who were buying, you know, nice stuff from here, vintage stuff. And she'd opened this shop in a swish part of Moscow, and was selling vintage clothes to the Russians, and they did not get it. I mean, they may have got it now. Mm, this mm, is five mm. years ago. They just didn't get it. The shop didn't last, actually. Mm. And in fact, when, I, when I've been in Moscow, I've said to Russian friends, let's go vintage clothes shopping. Yeah. Like, there isn't yeah. anywhere, right? And part of that is uh, actually in that Soviet times, people just wore clothes out. Yeah. But also there is that thing is that why would you wear clothes? Well, why would you buy clothes, you know, that somebody else has worn, unless you're poor, right? Unless you haven't got any exactly. option. Yeah. Um, but the notion of, of paying over the odds for <laughs> a jacket that was worn in the 1950s or 60s yeah, yeah. was completely... I'm sure that's changing now in, 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 in Moscow too, but it is a context thing, isn't it? And it's a sort of... Yeah. A different way of understanding clothing, yeah, not just the yeah. quality of the clothes. I mean, you're interested as well in the quality of the piece, but in Rebel Threads, you're also saying is, is that you're drawn to the clothes that are some, have been some sort of youth statement against yeah. Yeah. the older generation or against the, maybe their more square contemporaries. There's still Yagi, who I mentioned earlier, the, that Soviet youth uh, group. Um, they wore these kind of caricatured versions of um, American clothes. And they had to make them themselves. I mean, some of the wealthier yeah. ones whose dads were like diplomats or something might have brought some jeans back or whatever. Sure. But generally speaking, they get the sisters to like, you know, cut up curtains to make 
skipper ties and stuff, and yeah. narrow trousers and stuff. Well, actually, it, it was offensive clothing, and most of the anti-Stilyagi propaganda that was in the Soviet press, um, in magazines like Crocodile, with with, uh, with cartoons of them, it was ridiculing their clothing. And, of course, they were violently resisted. I mean, the Komsomol, the vo- voluntary youth group, would hunt them down mm. on the street, mm. Mm. would slash their narrow trousers, would cut their kipper ties, would mm. chop off their quiffs. Mm. You know, the mm. girls' ponytails would be cut off and stuff. It was most definitely a rebel statement, mm. actually. Mm. And so this book, which is a wonderful, wonderful uh survey of your collection and this stuff that's the theme running through it is it that's what you're attracted to that it's kind of countercultural. yeah those those groups that identified each other by the what they wore and they you know a, a type of music that they listened to and i was all i've always just been attracted to those outsider groups of of um you know subcultures and that's why i wanted to i've i've always co- i've collected their the clothes i've collected the stories uh, i've watched the films and you know a lot of the book is talking about how uh those uh sub- various subcultures were portrayed in films and um you know these days you, you, uh, you people don't make films about subcultures because uh the, the uh, it, it's um unless it's historical because it has no shelf life you know you can't make a sort of you know at that at the time of a lot of the movements in my book the way one would find out a lot about uh, um fashions or subcultures was by seeing them on a screen you know seeing them at the cinema and um um, but now that just doesn't happen. You'd, it, it, if ever there's a film about current fashion or current sort of subculture, it's always done in a pastiche. It's like a comedy somehow. Mm. And the last ones were really kind of in the you know in the in the seventies, I suppose. You know, uh, great rock and roll sin, swindle. Um, you can't. I mean, I can't even count quadrophenia as being um, current because that was you know 10 years after the event or, or longer there, there still are some sort of strong subcultures I'm thinking of goth actually mainly that's kind For of lasting sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, but generally speaking it is things have changed a lot probably internet and all sorts of other stuff hasn't yeah. it? so there isn't that sort of stronger identification of these kind of tribes in the yeah. way that there, yeah. there, there was um, but let's just go back to you speaking of tribes. So you're so going back to the shop, you open the shop in Neil Street with your buddy and you are importing this stuff which yeah. you'd found and liked yeah. in Holland and it's this kind yeah. of long leather coats and uh, the the jodpers and stuff like that. So were you aware when you were doing this that you were setting a scene that did become the look of this small group of people yeah. in London uh, who became known as the New Romantics and then went on to of music anyway into some of them hugely successful. So we were aware at the time that, that you yeah. that was going yeah, on. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it was... Um, it, it, it got a lot of publicity, that shop. It was... Um, the problem that we had with it was uh, that all this stuff that we we were buying um, um, in um, in Holland and Belgium and Germany and stuff was was all massive, and we were, we were selling it to you know sixteen, eighteen, twenty year old kids, you know, who were quite 
slim and fey and so on. And uh, even though we, would, we tried to alter them and, you know, bought the smaller sizes and so on, things like trousers and, um, and shirts were impossible. So we had to start making them. And, and that's when I sort of started to lose interest, really. So after about a year, we just, yeah, got out and went back on the road, basically. And, you know, Portobello Road for the first time in years because we were, you know, we, had, we almost had to start all over again, you know. Right, was, but this was the beginning uh, of what was to come next, right? So tell us how that happened. I'd phoned up my partner who was, who'd done, been on Portobello Road and asked him how the weekend had been, you know, selling over there. And he said, well, quite interesting, actually. He said, this guy came by said that he was an art director on a movie and he was um, just um, uh, about, they were just about set on, uh, off on making a movie about mods. And it's like, oh, uh, I think we know <laughs> a little bit about that. Sir. And um, would we be up for supplying the movie? You know, of course, you know, my partner said yes. And, um, uh, but that was on the Saturday and on the Monday morning, meeting in Wembley, um, with the with the producers and director of, of Who Films, and it, this was this um, movie is going to be called Quadrophenia, and you know financed by the Who, and and we yeah we got a contract to supply the film with all the, all the clothes. And that opened up a new door for you, didn't it? Then you did Absolute Beginners. Right? It did indeed. Yeah, you started yeah. to do like lots of lots of music videos, and stuff. endless music videos. Yeah, I mean that we thought we were being clever, and we'd sold all of these clothes to the production because they weren't sure what was going to happen to them, whether they were going to be because uh, there's lots of fight scenes, and they were going to end up in the in the sea and so on. So they wanted to buy the stuff. We were happy to get rid of it, make some money. Producer said, "What are you can do now?" And we said, well, "You know, back on the road." He said, "Well, how about you buy back the stuff that's in good condition um, and set up a hire company?" So, like, what do you mean hire company? What, we don't think about hiring. You know, what hiring to who, what, where? Mark my words, he said, "You know, Quadrophenia is going to be a massive success, and there's going to be a load of films, you know, made about youth culture and um, subcultures and stuff." and uh, You'll you'll be in the yeah the right place to supply them. Really? Oh right. Okay. So we started to look into this idea of of having a a, a hire company, costume hire company, and discovered that the the other big um, company in in London was called Bermans and Nathans, and they covered all periods from sort of medieval to <laughs> uh, you know. 18th century to whenever um, but their cutoff point was World War Two, end of World War Two. well my partner and I were only really interested in anything after that period so we set ourselves up as a, um, um, you know as, as a contemporary um, uh, uh, costume supplier for film and TV uh, this friend of ours who was a, um, a, a journalist for uh, Fashion Press, and she said, I'm going to write about it. So she she wrote it and she pitched the uh, the story to the Sunday Times, and the Sunday Times did a, a five-page thing in the, in, the, in the Sunday Times magazine. And then by chance, I uh, another friend of mine um, called me up one evening. He said he'd been drinking with uh, Vivian Westwood in Ella King's Road. 
and um, he, she was saying that she was, they were just about to change the, their, their punk shop's additionaries into a new style shop. Uh, was I interested in how, uh, designing it? That was the um, really you know, the beginning of my relationship with them um, um, and designing World's End. And um, did an, uh, uh, a couple of years later, I was asked by um, Vivian to do another shot for them um, called Nostalgia of Mud in St Christopher's Place. Uh, it, it, it must have been an opening or, or a party or something. I got to meet this uh, this young fledgling um, uh, film director called Julian Temple, who'd, who'd done the great rock and roll swindle. And we got chatting and, you know, he, he knew, I told him about my collection. And he, he, you know, and he said, well, you know, would you be interested in working in music videos? So I said, well, uh, yeah, OK. I've got no kind of real experience in it, but yeah, why not? That, essentially, what happened was it wasn't really the uh, the film uh, Quadrophenia that took off. Hmm. It was it was this youth culture thing that took off in in music videos. The pop video, the music video, which I suppose it's been taken more seriously now, isn't it? But it was always regarded as you know being a bit throwaway. Mm. And but of course, uh, from that time. The, you know, they tend to look dated now, but they were important little things, weren't they? Because you could kind of like express your whole kind of visual ethic yeah, as yeah, well yeah, as yeah. The, 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 the sonic ethic. I wanted to just to say for you to talk a little bit about the relationship between the kind of youth cultural clothing and fashion. You mentioned fashion then and like, you know, your friend writing this piece for the Sunday Times and stuff. But the story of the counterculture generally hasn't is that, you know, things emerge in the underground film, music, art stuff, right? And then they get sort of sucked up into the mainstream, often via the advertising industry and often yeah. via the fashion industry, don't they? And I guess with clothing, it's quite quick, isn't it? Because I guess with the you know fashionistas, fashion designers, who end up working for the big fashion labels and stuff, they're always on the lookout, aren't they? So well, the stuff that you were doing, like say with, the, with uh, is it PX, the shop in Neal Street? Yeah. You know, I mean, very quickly, as it had, had happened with Westwood stuff, that got sort of sucked up into the kind of high street, didn't it? I mean, it wasn't, it was only a matter of a year or two, wasn't it? A kind of yeah, slightly watered yeah. down version of it. And that's yeah. always been the story with Always, really, with clothes, yes, always, it? yeah. As you said, they soon became, you know, picked up by the by the fashion press or the press, and you know, became uh, commercialised or, or at least, you know, plagiarised. So or going back to you, yeah. so you're riding high now. By now, you've actually had a five page spread in the Sunday Times. You're um you're servicing the this burgeoning music video industry, <laughs> uh, which is you know mainlining it straight to the kids right so that was a good time for you i mean so how do we get from there to the horse hospital uh, in the in the early 80s um i'd, I'd got this uh, uh, um, uh, warehouse in uh, borough market which again had, had fallen foul of the you know progress and they were having to move out and so there was lots of empty spaces around there so i took a warehouse there had my had my collection there which was ever growing and you know, as you say, you know, it was being used. It wasn't only me that was styling these uh, these videos. I mean, I had about eight people working with me at that time, and we were doing you know two or three uh, a week. I mean, it was just like nonstop. It was crazy. Um, and um, and then we got into into um, 
you know, doing more um, serious stuff like, for, you know, film and so on and TV commercials. And it was a it was a very, very busy time. I'd uh the 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 warehouse that we're in was um the lease expired i think it was uh like 1983 maybe or somewhere else. and so i started to look around for a, a space and found one in covent garden by uh the early 90s the uh lease expired on that building so i started to look around primarily for somewhere just to store my collection of clothes um and I, I knew there was always garages to let around bloomsbury and particularly this little muse i remembered um colonnade muse in bloomsbury behind the underground station and i knew there was always garages down there and anyway i sent i sent um uh this um, one of my assistants along to have a little look um uh, a gentleman called Guy Sangster Adams, and um, he um, came back very excitedly. He said he'd found this building that I should come and have a look at. Um, it was it was empty, derelict, roof was caving in, etc. But it was amazing space. You could just see in the window that it just looked amazing. So I went along, and um, it was a horse hospital. And for anybody who doesn't know, um, it was a horse hospital. It had been a 19th century horse hospital. Those mews, those London mews, were the kind of back alleys for the big grand houses where all the stables were. And it was, it was yeah. from that era, wasn't it? So, yeah. so where the, what were now garages and little cute mews cottages had been where the horses were kept and the people who took care of the horses lived. And That's right. And, and, then, and, and this was where the horses were actually taken care of and operated on and yeah. everything that needs to be and done. It, it, so it's literally a horse hospital. For anybody who hasn't been to the building, it's got it's got two floors, which are... Which are uh, uh, ones what ones like in a semi basement, and the other ones on a, on a, like a first floor, and and they're they're joined by ramps um, for the horses, and there was space for like twelve horses on each floor, so it's they're pretty big. And um, we decided on the upper floor that we would uh, make it into um, uh, like a, an art gallery or, or or a space that was able to be very flexible we could do whatever we wanted with it and um in order to uh, announce the fact that we'd moved to the building we decided that we would have an exhibition of um of clothing we'd have a fashion exhibition and and it was you know quite some time <clears throat> since the whole punk thing had finished and i'd particularly collected it uh, and i knew lots of other friends who had collected uh, Westwood uh, and McLaren's um, punk period clothes decided to have this exhibition. It was time, you know, because at that time, you know, Vivian was not as... Um, it's quite interesting because, of course, we've just come out of this whole couple of years of punk stuff, haven't we? You know, there was a lot of punk nostalgia, wasn't there? And yeah, exhibitions and yeah. all sorts of stuff, big ones, V&A and everything involved. And actually, suppose, suppose you, you did the first kind of punk retrospective then, didn't you, really? Yeah, interestingly, yes, yeah. I mean, we, I, I know, it, it, it wasn't so much about... I don't know, it, 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 was, it was more to, to draw attention to the mm. building, mm. get us a bit, bit of publicity and, and sort of announce the fact that you know, here we are. We can do what we want to do with this building, and we're just going to do it, mm. and that's it. And 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 done with this sort of DIY sort mm. of punk attitude, basically, which is 
what that building was about. In terms of counterculture, which we talk about often as though it ended sort of sometime in the sort of mid seventies, you basically have provided a home for countercultural arts for twenty seven years because as well as the collection on the other floor, was it be the first floor originally and now the lower floor, mm. you've offered it as to fringe arts, fringe artists, organisations to do exhibitions, events, all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff for 27 years, right, Roger? And in fact, I'm going to, I've got to put on record a bit of personal appreciation here because uh, with The Real Tuesday World, uh, you know, when I did brought my third album out, which was the soundtrack to Glenn Duncan's book, I, Lucifer, uh, I, my manager at the time and the publishers were, were nagging me and him to do a show. I'd never played live. And by the way, I couldn't play live. I made this record with a sampler and a gramophone and a keyboard and a cheap, tandy microphone. I had no idea how to play live. So uh, I was sort of embarrassed into it. And we agreed to do, we said, we'll do Glenick and Reed. We'll show a couple of films because I've been working with animators. And I'll play three songs and... Uh, I'm not quite sure how, but we got introduced to the Horse Hospital, right? You kindly uh, let us do this uh, launch event for the book, at least for the album, at least for which we did there. And that was going to be my last show, my, my one and only first and last <laughs> show. Five years later, I, I remember this, I was on stage at the Montreal Jazz Festival in front of 20,000 people. Uh, wow. And so I, wow. I, I'm putting you down. I'm going to blame you for that. <laughs> <laughs> and the horse hospital. And that's, that's story number one, OK? Story number two, uh, which is more recent, you might remember, of course, is that, you know, I'd got this project, the X-Ray Audio Project. Mm. And, of course, I was trying to get some money out of the, um, the Arts Council. And as you know, they'll only cough up if you do uh, public engagement events, you know. Mm, mm. I wasn't that interested at that time in doing a public engagement event. But I thought, well, you know, we could do a little exhibition. And, uh, of course, so I asked you and you said, yeah, sure, you can do it at the horse hospital. Well, we put on that little exhibition at the horse hospital, you may remember. Mm. And The Guardian wrote that piece. And then the Today programme asked me to go on and talk about it. And do you remember? And then I do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sort of turned into this kind of mini phenomenon, yeah. isn't it? Right. And then three years later, blow me, I've got an exhibition in Tel Aviv Museum, Museum of Art. Amazing. And Glasgow, uh, sorry, Moscow Museum of Contemporary Art, St. Petersburg. I was in Tokyo with it last year. It's gone to Berlin. It's gone around the world. Seriously, you've given a start and you've given a leg up or a hand up to many, many artists there, haven't you? Because, and you've sort of stayed true to that countercultural, outsider, fringe ethos, right? Yeah, well, we tried to just, you know, having a space like that, having a very young team who worked for me, who were very excited about it and wanting to do something different and, and you know the fact that we could do anything we wanted to do without asking somebody's permission. You know, we made it official. We turned it into a not-for-profit kind of um, company, my wife and I, and decided that, you know, let's give people who um, who maybe not had any training, um, not been through the university system, but were naturally gifted at, at uh, doing interesting um, uh, you know, outside of music, film, whatever, whatever, whatever art, that whatever it may be, and uh, it was, I suppose, it was like um, a bit. I, I almost became like uh, you know a hunter gatherer, you know, trying to find the most obscure sort of uh, um, artists or you know filmmakers or whatever, because it was, you know. 
our, our thing was that they, they, you know, they couldn't have been seen before by anybody else in 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 London. You know, it's all right, other countries or you know the cities or whatever. But we we, we always had to have the exclusive on, um, and and so, you know, it it yeah, it became quite hard actually to start with, and until the internet. Mm. Um, you know, because we were always like writing letters and sending faxes and phoning people, trying to find interesting, interesting material, interesting people, interesting stuff. And then the internet happened, and you know they they found us basically, mm. and uh, it it's gone on, as you say, twenty seven years, five thousand artists plus, uh, probably the same amount of films that we've screened there, and you know, I mean, just like endless, endless. Um, uh, stuff and we're still there now and we're still fighting for it you know well let's talk about that i mean for people who don't know i mean apart from the fact that it's this wonderful building the other extraordinary thing about it or it seems extraordinary these days not in the context of what you were talking about earlier but now is that it's smack in the middle of london it's you know directly behind russell square tube station it's in an area which has become you know very very gentrified and of course you know property values have rocketed uh, so it's unusual in both ways. It's in bo- it's unusual in the fact that it's existed for that amount of time, but it's also particularly unusual that it's existed in central London, which has really been denuded of all of, of counterculture. Really, mm-hmm. you know, it's all been pushed out to the fringes. So it's important from that point of view. And you've been fighting, you know, with the lease owner, the owner of the building, for. Years, I know, um, you know, who want to take it back and develop it, you know, like as property developers do. It obviously, from the outside, seems incredibly selfish and greedy when it's when this is a cultural um, uh, opportunity for the community. You know, you've served all those people for all those years, so it does seem an individual or a group, you know, putting their own financial interests in front of the collective cultural interest it's well, pain, yeah, it's a yeah, painful yeah, yeah. painful it, it, painful it is a, it is very painful and it's and it, because it's dragged on for so long it it's becoming mm. you know it's it's it it it's i i i don't know i just feel like we have to win somehow mm. or at least if we if we don't i'm going to go out fighting you know? yeah <laughs> you've been a fighter uh, Roger, you've been an outsider, haven't you, in all that time? I mean, you know, right the way back to the farm. Um, I wanted to read this, which is from your book. Um, it's another great piece, actually. It's in the preface, which is from teenage angst and rites of passage to dreams of changing the world. These fineries, talking about the clothes, were once displayed with attitude and stance by kids who'd rebel against anything you'd got and generations who really believed that they'd die before they got old. And uh, that's you, isn't it? I mean, um, you, did, well, yeah, you have got yeah. old. Uh, I, must, I, I, have to, I have to tell you that, but uh, <laughs> you seem yeah. to be alive and more than twitching as well. So, um, you know, but you've sort of stayed true to that kind of rebel ethos, isn't it? With the horse hospital, very much like that. And, you, you know, you, you, you say you're going to go down fighting. I mean, you're... Yeah, because that's well, the yeah. spirit of the whole Absolutely. I mean, I'm it? just still very passionate about things. Mm. I'm still very passionate about clothes and film, mm. the building, people, you know. I mean, mm. I'm, I, 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 yeah, as far as, mm. as, as, and for as long as I can, I'm just going to keep on, basically, just being passionate about it. You can buy yourself a copy of this wonderful book, Rebel Threads. It's a beauty. It's a coffee table book, but it's inspiration. Great text, amazing images of amazing clothes. 
And also, uh, Roger tells me that if you go to the Horse Hospital website now, you can get yourself a discounted copy, and it's a brilliant Christmas present as well. It weighs, <laughs> it weighs in at about four pounds, I think. I'm sure Roger even sign it if you ask him. Um, Absolutely, uh, yeah, totally. sign copies. Yeah. There we go. Thank you, brilliant. Roger, for Thank coming you, to Steve. the Bureau of Lost Culture. We appreciate you. My pleasure. So there you have it, a whole life spent in the counterculture, dressing the counterculture. You can check out more about Roger, about his book, Rebel Threads, about the contemporary wardrobe collection, his collection of Rebel Threads, and about the horse hospital, including all the events of the past and present that have taken place there and are taking place there still, and hopefully will continue to take place there into the future. You can check out details of how to support and help the Horse Hospital in their fight to stay open serving up counterculture in central London. It would be a tragedy if that stopped. You don't know what you've got till it's gone, as they say. Go to thehorsehospital.com. Thanks for listening. You can check out more about us at bureauoflostculture.com. I'm Stephen Coates. <laughs>